This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. The climate crisis, the wealth gap, infectious diseases, conflicts, access to food and water, public trust. I'm reading here from a list published by the World Health Organization of the most urgent health challenges that the world's population faces this decade. It's a lot to get your head around. The challenges are immense, diverse and complex. But as you'll hear in this episode, the opportunities to solve challenges like these are literally all around us. There is a goldmine of ability within each of us and within each community, if only it can be brought out and used for everybody's benefit. I'm Jake Lloyd. You're listening to the How to Build Community Show. And in this episode, we're listening in on a conversation of community leaders from around the world, all members of Aruka Network, in which they discuss how to make the global health system fit for the future. And the answer, they argue, is to put community at its centre. Now, this podcast is a co-production of Tear Fund's Footsteps magazine and Aruka Network. And Aruka is a global support network for people involved in community development. The word Aruka, it means wholeness, restoration and health. And this tells you what the network's members are aiming for. So sometimes these members hold meetings online which anyone can join to discuss a topic of the network's choosing. Together they share stories, questions, experiences, ideas, challenges, all with the intent of learning together and building each other up to go and serve their own communities. And in this episode, we're listening in on one of these conversations, which was about the future of global health. So the numbers for you, there were 40 people at the meeting. There were nine countries represented, and I'm going to share with you 10 short clips from this conversation. So you'll hear them discuss the potential within each community, the challenges of getting community voices heard. You'll hear why it's important for community groups to collaborate with one another, You'll hear them talk about how to build relationships with local governments, and you'll hear some stories of making mistakes and learning from them. So let's begin, first of all, Ted from the UK, who hosted this particular meeting, started by describing the challenges that the world faces at the moment. And he did so by introducing a word that I had not heard before. VUCA. Some of you would have come across this term, VU. C-A. V for volatile, U for unpredictable, C for complex, A for ambiguous. And that seems to describe the way that our world is going. Uh, One way we're seeing this, for example, is higher energy prices, higher prices for food and other commodities, more frequent floods and droughts and wars, COVID. And not knowing what the future holds. 
So communities are being put under a lot of pressure. Far more people, families, neighbourhoods and communities are becoming seriously poor. And I guess that's the context that we have as we discuss this and look at what we might be able to do about it. That sounds like quite a challenge, doesn't it? But he then shared a quote he'd heard to illustrate why the solutions to such challenges can be found in every community. If you take any community of, say, 200 people, regardless of how poor, remote or under-resourced they seem to be, Given different circumstances, if they were well-resourced, that community is likely to include a potential country leader, a premier football player, and a world-class actor. In other words, there is a fun, there is a goldmine of ability within each of us and within each community, if only it can be brought out and used for everybody's benefit. So a community is a source of strength with many different abilities and they're able to find their own solutions to the challenges they face. And this strength, Ted argued, should be the foundation of efforts to improve global health. In a moment, you'll hear another Aruka member, Tom, ask a question. But first, Ted talked about an often overlooked relationship that community groups ought to focus on. We sometimes do not engage with the government to the extent that we really should. It's extremely important because health departments uh, from the top down in a government tend to follow uh, good evidence-based advice from the United Nations, such as the World Health Organization, and they have the policies and the guidance, sometimes, not always, the supplies which help to resource communities. So it's very crucial that we do not work separately from the government. We need to work in association as far as we possibly can. Let me push back on that slightly, Ted. In, in, this, in this world where health systems and governments are really stretched or, quite, or in some cases quite weak, and then when local community organisations are feeling stretched themselves, maybe don't have the resources to engage with the government, um, or are feeling under-resourced. It can feel quite daunting, can't it, to know how to make those res- those relationships work. Any recommendations on first steps that people can take to make that happen well? Uh, yes, I would suggest that, you know, within a community or within a cluster, that uh, somebody who, who's, who's got the, the confidence and perhaps the, the connections who will actually uh, ask to see the district medical officer or, or a member of the team Um, introduce themselves, explain what they're doing, ask in what ways they can work alongside the government, not in competition, but in collaboration, build that relationship. And sometimes our programmes can get together, um, register with the government, and the government can then actually contract out some of the work which they're unable to do to the work of the clusters. And that helps. That works amazingly in one of our clusters in, in Uttarakhand, North India. And this became a bit of a theme of this meeting, how communities and community groups can best build relationships with government representatives. And for community leader Denison from the Bihar region of northern India, this isn't easy. We know uh, very often the government strategy has been top down and where the policies and strategies are designed by the bureaucrats. And increasingly, the large NGOs also seem to be uh, designing things uh, from their uh, you know, office rooms 
of course we know there are a lot of researchers going on and they pick up a lot of evidences from from those researchers but then where you said to start with the community that is something is not there in the planning there is a lot of research studies evidences uh, but the strategies are from your office office uh, you know desktop how do you do that? i mean how do you see that Responding to Denison, one attendee, Graham from the UK, shared a possible solution to this that he's heard about through his work supporting the leaders of NGOs, charities and other groups that are trying to solve complex health challenges. I've just been working with quite a number of uh, large networks of organisations and the key message that came out of that was, in a way, the need for a new kind of donor conference. so in other words, where the, um, the, the, the small NGOs in particular are too fragmented for government to listen. But if 60 or 70 or 100 or 1,000 NGOs got together in a room, but they were the ones on the platform and the governments and the donors were listening, that could have a different kind of impact. And I'm finding as I'm talking to people in various parts of the world, enormous appetite, but no idea how to organise that. Um, I think a slight fear that they may not either have the capacity or the ability to do it. We then heard from Munya in Zimbabwe, who might be a familiar voice to you if you're a regular listener to this show. She describes herself as a development worker and social scientist who helps communities advocate for change. She described how she trains communities to use something called a community scorecard. This is a simple form which households can use to gather information about the quality of local services like water, sanitation, schools, health clinics, roads and waste management. And this information can then be used to advocate for service improvements. Here's Munya. The community scorecard is basically a tool that communities use to harvest um, citizen perceptions or thoughts um, about a, sorry about that, uh, thoughts about a particular social service. So um, it could be the issue of health, it could be um, uh, access to water, it could be access to roads. Um, I, I guess in the context of our conversation here, it would be uh, around health issues. So communities will develop specific questions that they put on the scorecard and then they administer in the communities. The questions are always guided by what we call the triple AQ framework. So we're asking questions about around accessibility of a particular service. In our instance, it would be health. So about um, accessibility of health services, about availability of the services, about um, affordability of the service and the quality of the service. So um, the questions are always couched within the triple AQ framework. Once the community champions have developed the scorecards, they go into communities, they administer. The idea is to harvest as much information as possible and from as many community members as possible um, so that they then develop a report which they use to engage. So their community scorecard report becomes their advocacy tool which they then use to engage uh, solution holders. In our instance, health is always provided for by our government and our local authorities are the ones that are responsible in this instance. At the point of engaging the state, the idea is always to make sure that communities come out of that engagement with commitments, shared commitments. First of all, a shared understanding 
with their solution holders about what, what exactly the problem is, but more importantly, what the commitment is from both the community members as well as the state in terms of what they're going to do to improve um, or to work towards improving that particular challenge. And in this instance, it would be um, access to better health services. Um, but what is more important is that the champions have to go back to the communities and feedback. We always make an emphasis that our uh, um, intervention is not um, extractive. We don't just go into communities, get information and kind of just go away. But that champions have a responsibility to go back to communities and provide feedback in terms of the engagement they would have had with the state. And if you'd like to hear more from Munya, then do take a look at the past episode of How to Build Community called How to Advocate for Change. But what Munya said clearly resonated with Angela in Zambia. And as Angela spoke, she seemed to be almost imagining how this might take place in her own community. I think for me, this is a great learning point uh, that advocates has been the missing component in our uh, strategies. Because for here, when uh, communities are having a document that they make themselves, not a researcher from outside, but uh, some research that they have personally done, and at the end of the day, they are the ones to evaluate and see the goodness, like you have said, when they see these things now changing, they know where it began from. And, and above all, I think it's, it's good civic education that communities learn how to hold the state or our leaders accountable. And then with a slightly different perspective, the group heard from Sadevi. Now, Sadevi runs a hospital and medical training centre in Nagaland, that's in northeast India. His hospital has a community health department, but he explained how he has been guilty in the past of not listening to the communities that they seek to serve. We often go into the community looking for problems, which we can solve with solutions that we have acquired from various uh, very legitimate sources and our own experiences. And quite often, um, many of these are based on our assumptions. And often though they are quite legitimate, they can be quite simplistic and naive. So, so quite often it's like many sicknesses are due to poor hygiene, and therefore the answer is to wash people with soap and water, provide basic sanitation, which sounds very good. Um, yeah, or tuberculosis is caused by a germ, and therefore treat them with six months of medicines, educate them about the disease and you'll take care of the problem. And that's what the national program does. And this all sounds logical, but our experiences have been very different. And so I'd like to just give you a few examples of uh, what we did wrong. You know, So we had sent a small team of our nurses and you know, a small team who went to Myanmar uh, to do a mission trip. And... Uh, they were armed with quite a lot of goodies, and uh, they were also inspired by a de- by a, a very uh, reputed Christian physician who had been working in uh, community health for many many years. And he said, when you go there, teach them basics of hygiene, sanitation, and things like that. Don't talk about some very high end things. So they took a lot of soap and all that they could, and went there and they did their work in Myanmar. 
And then uh, they washed a lot of the babies there with soap and water. They took lots of nice photographs. And what happened was actually uh, the babies and the children who, were, who, who took a bath, their lives became miserable. Because prior to that, they, they never took a bath for many, many years. And their skin was caked with, uh, you know, very thick dirt. And so uh, it protected them from insects. So after they were washed, uh, the insects started biting them and then their lives became miserable. So I thought, my goodness, <laughs> we thought we were doing well. So what lessons did he learn from this? Here's Sadevi again. So what was really wrong with our strategies? We felt we knew the answers since we were educated. We knew from stories across the world, experiences. It's worked elsewhere and therefore it should work here. And we were really not listening enough. So we did not really create community leaders or community ownership amongst people who would find their own solutions based on their own experiences, observations, and knowledge. So we did things for them, and we did not really tap onto their strengths well enough. So since then, my understanding and the manner of our working has changed a little bit, and it is, it's still changing. We're trying to evolve into this. And uh, a few years back, I, I noticed that there's a lady called Grace here uh, from University of Cape Town. There's a Dr. Steve Reed who came from University of Cape Town. And he introduced to us this concept of the leading causes of life by Gary Gunderson. So when you go into a community, don't look at uh, the problems or the, what are the issues, but really look at what causes or generates life. So he called it the leading causes of life. So they were like connectivity, agency, hope, coherence, and generativity. And this I found really fascinating because I realized we were being, you know, we were looking for problems. And if you realize, if you look at problems, it's endless. You know, the world is a wicked place. And ever since Adam and Eve ate the, the guava, <laughs> you know, things really worked out, uh, you know, so bad. So Chasing after problems is like an endless thing. Whereas if we're looking at the strengths of people, understanding that uh, God, there is the image of God in these people. And the image of God is, is got fantastic potential. And if we can work with that, then there is a, there's a winner there. And finally, responding to Sadevi, Alison from an NGO in Southeast Asia pointed out the importance of patience and relationship building when it comes to finding the people in a community who are able to lead effective change. Our experience in Laos um, was very similar, but it does take time and you just have to spend time building those relationships. And you see people who will rise to the top and they're the ones that will make the change in their community. And often they're not the ones we uh, always recognise right away. But over time um, and building their confidence and their um, just giving them an opportunity. And then you see ones that will change their communities. And that's really exciting to watch. But it's not a quick, a quick process. It can't be done by one, you know, uh, visit to a village or something it, it, uh, or one visit to a health centre. It, it takes a long time and it's slow, but it's worth the effort. And so that's almost it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed these extracts from the kinds of conversation that take place among members of Eureka Network as they each go about 
trying to create this wholeness, health and well-being, otherwise known as Aruka, in their communities around the world. And if you'd like to learn more about Aruka, just visit arukanetwork.org. There you can find out ways to get involved, either as a member of the network or as a friend of Aruka, where you can support their work. Before we go, you can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can read and download every edition of Tearfund's Footsteps magazine at learn.tearfund.org, including editions on communicable diseases and community-led advocacy. You can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community online or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or maybe suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email, jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>